Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. I'm David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist here at JP Morgan Funds. On today's episode, we're going to talk about fixed income. Last Wednesday, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time in two years, and by way of its forward guidance, delivered a slightly hawkish surprise to markets. Since the Fed cut rates to zero in March of 2020, the US economy has staged a dramatic recovery, the labour market now looks very tight and inflation is running hot. However, once the Fed starts raising or lowering rates, it tends to keep doing so. So what's the outlook for the Fed's rate hikes and balance sheet reduction? What kind of risks is the Fed facing by hiking amidst Ukraine uncertainty and spiking energy prices? And how should we position portfolios given all of this? To provide some insights on these important questions, I've invited my colleague Jordan Jackson, Global Market Strategist for JP Morgan Asset Management and our in-house fixed income specialist. So Jordan, welcome back to Insights Now. Thank you for having me, David. So last week we had an FOMC meeting and the Fed raised interest rates for the first time since 2018. Can you walk us through the main takeaways from their meeting? Sure. Uh, I'd first like to talk about uh, what they did to interest rates then talk about what they hinted at towards the balance sheet, and then lastly, what they highlighted in their updated summary of economic projections. Uh, so first on interest rate policy, as you've highlighted, they rose, uh, increased interest rates by a quarter of a percent uh, to 0.25 to 0.5%. Uh, they also highlighted that uh, it's likely that they would uh, be delivering a series of rate increases uh, from today forward. So. Uh, highlighting a, roughly about six additional rate increases happening over the course of this year of 25 basis points. Uh, also on the balance sheet, while they didn't, uh, they didn't announce details to what uh, reducing the size of the balance sheet would potentially look like, uh, Jer Jerome Powell did make mention that they would be potentially pulling forward uh, when they would begin reducing the size of the balance sheet. So where we came into the year expecting that balance sheet reduction would begin uh, sometime in the middle of this year, June timeframe, uh, we're now anticipating the Fed to come out at their May meeting and announce uh, what uh, balance sheet reduction will look like over the course of this year. Uh, and then lastly, on the summary of economic projections, uh, they did make some pretty material changes uh, to their outlook. Uh, so from GDP, on a GDP perspective, uh, they materially downgraded uh, their assessment of fourth quarter 2022 growth. Uh, they moved that number lower from 4% down to 2.8%. And I think this was in large part a reflection of the uncertainty around uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that might curtail economic activity over the course of this year. Uh, they also materially increased their PCE inflation target for this year as well. Um, so uh, increasing that the 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 core and the headline up 1.4 and 1.7 percent respectively to 4.1 and 4.3 percent uh, by by the end of of this year, uh, and then lastly from an unemployment rate uh, perspective, they made no adjustments to their unemployment rate target uh, and actually kept that 3.5 percent target through this year and next year in a slight increase to that target um, uh, by a tenth of a percent for 2024. Uh, so that's what they did, uh, and that's what they're currently signaling um, uh, uh, following last week's meeting. And, and we know that they also updated their sort of famous dot plot showing what they expect uh, the federal funds rate to be. So um, what is the Fed signaling both in terms of its updated dot plot and also any forward guidance it has on its balance sheet? Well, they certainly ex signaled that uh, we should expect some more tightening. Uh, they signaled that there's a clear intent 
to tighten financial conditions uh, from here and to uh, ward off inflation uh, that we're currently seeing. So from a dot plot, the median FOMC member now expects the Fed funds rate uh, to end the year uh, in between a range of 1.75 to 2%. Uh, that's up from up, up a full percentage point from their December forecast. Uh, and the median FOMC member now also uh, forecasts an additional three to four rate hikes sometime next year. So increasing the federal funds target rate range to a range of 2.75 uh, to 3%. What's really important is that uh, they've also provided an update to their long-run projection, uh, so or their quote-unquote neutral, uh, long-term neutral federal funds rate. Uh, at the December meeting, that number set at 2.5%. Uh, as of their up as of the March update, it had come down by about a tenth of a percent to 2.4%. So what this is essentially signaling is that the Federal Reserve, the committee members, would like to increase rates to modestly restrictive territory sometime next year. Again, raising rates to roughly two, two and a quarter, two and three quarters of a percent, while their longer run projection is still at around 2.4%. And I think to a certain degree, that's one of the reasons why you saw the curve actually twist flatter after the FOMC meeting uh, last week. Um, and there was also news of Sarah Raskin withdrawing her nomination to become vice chair of the Federal Reserve. What do, what do you think that means for the makeup of the Fed? Well, it's clear that that uh, President Biden had nominated a total of three new uh, Democrats to, to the, the, the committee. Um, and to a certain degree, it appears that uh, Republicans had been giving President Biden a little bit of pushback on sort of uh, being able to nominate all three at, 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 one, at once. Um, but she did remove her, her nomination. And, and, and I do think there are a couple of implications for how investors should view the median dot plot. Um, so, and, and, and again, I think this is one of the reasons why the longer term dot, dot plot had adjusted slightly lower. Um, first, Vice Chair Clarida and Governor Qualls resigned from their seats uh, following the December meeting. Um, and so again, you have these two new Senate seats that have not yet been confirmed following the withdrawal of Sarah, Sarah Raskin's nomination, effectively the distribution of the median dots lost two, two, two and a half percent long run targets to that long run projection. Uh, second, it also appears that two other FOMC members had lowered their long-term uh, target. And so that's why you have this slight adjustment lower to that long run target uh, down from 2.5% uh, to 2.4%. So I do think there is a little bit of, of investors should be somewhat careful on how they read the the long-term dots, just given the makeup of the committee has shifted somewhat. Going back to the Fed's decision on Wednesday, are you surprised that they were this aggressive given everything that's going on with Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine? I mean, why is or isn't Ukraine um, influencing the Fed's uh, path on tightening here? I wasn't too surprised by the Fed's uh, more hawkish shift. I, I think what the Fed is uh, communicating to the markets is that it views, at, at least today, the main feed-through mechanism of the Russia-Ukraine conflict into the U.S. is inflation. And they also feel like they are a bit behind the curve in warding off the inflation that we're currently seeing. And so they have very much positioned themselves to be a bit more aggressive here in, in having to deliver a series of rate hikes in order to quell higher inflation. And again, they don't feel that the Russia-Ukraine is going to deter aggregate demand all that much 
here in the U.S. I think that is reflective of keeping their uh, unemployment rate target still at a very low three and a half percent. We could very well see that uh, that number come in actually a bit lower than that by the by the time we reach even the summertime. And and so I think they they've they've they feel this their onus to 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 hike rates and to ward off the inflation that we're currently seeing today. Uh, and they do think that the spillover effect will be even higher prices to the everyday consumer here in the here in the U.S. We've also seen a, an inversion of at least parts of the yield curve after the Fed's meeting. Historically, yield curve inversion has had a pretty good track record in predicting recessions. So should this be a concern for investors, do you think? Well, I think to a certain degree, it should be a, of somewhat of a concern to investors, just given the, the predictive nature of the shape of the curve. It, it is true. Uh, that prior to every recession going back to 1960, the curve has inverted. Um, and if you do, we already have seen an inversion in the forwards twos tens curve, um, as well as an inversion in the forwards three month ten year curve as well. Uh, and so this could, if, if in the event the curve does invert, you're likely going to have a bunch of warning signs signal throughout financial markets uh, about the probability of a recession potentially uh, increasing. But I would highlight that you know, we would argue that the, the traditional curve is heavily distorted, uh, particularly at the back end. And I think you need to look no further than uh, fourth quarter GDP coming in at 7%, inflation now running at 8%, uh, but you have nominal yields at 2%. And I think that is a, a, an evidence of how distorted the back end of the curve is. I think the, the question that investors really should be asking themselves is, uh, how much of monetary policy is palatable for markets? And if you were to look at the three-month to 10-year spread, for an example, uh, that curve is still very positively sloped at around 150 basis points. If you were to look at the near-term forward spread or the uh, yield on the current three-month Treasury bill and the three-month Treasury bill priced 18 months from today or six quarters out from today, that spread is in very positive territory. So there are other metrics that we can look at that would suggest that uh, markets are okay with the Fed getting going on tightening policy from current levels. All right, well, broadly to add from the current yield curve dynamics, I mean, do you think, you know, broadly speaking, do you think the current path that the Federal Reserve is setting out is too aggressive? And, and do you think the Federal Reserve could actually put the U.S. economy into recession? Uh, yes, I do think that the path that the Federal Reserve is taking is too aggressive. But I don't think that the level that they would effectively reach is a level that is too uh, restrictive for overall economic conditions. Uh, again, if you by, by front loading rate hikes, again, delivering almost all of your policy tightening essentially over 18 month period, I think you certainly increase the risks of of, of dipping the economy into recession. And this is just not tightening that we're seeing uh, in interest rate policy. This is also tightening that we're expecting to see on the balance sheet. Um, they could very well uh, come out again, as we expect in, in May, and talk about the reduction in the size of the balance sheet. And we have looked at the maturity schedule of the Fed's uh, mortgage-backed security holdings and their treasury holdings as well. You know, even through the course of just 2022, if, if, our, if our assumptions are correct and that they begin to reduce the size of, of the balance sheet as, as soon as May, uh, we could see roughly 700 billion in maturities uh, or, or in securities maturing off of the Fed's balance sheet by the end of this year. Uh, this is on top of, again, a potential uh, additional six rate heights and, and, and actually several FOMC participants anticipate a, a 50 basis point or more increase at some point later this year. Uh, so I do think the pace uh, in which they are removing policy accommodation 
maybe a little bit too quickly, uh, and that certainly increases the risks of a recession, uh, we think, uh, potentially in, in the second half of 2023 or, or 2024. And of course, there is also the, resi- the, the risk that inflation, you know, despite everything they're doing, inflation remains high. So uh, what do you think about the risk of stagflation? Well, I, I still think the risk of a stagflation environment here in the U.S. is, is relatively low. Uh, the reality is aggregate demand is, is incredibly strong. Uh, demand for labor is, is incredibly strong. Uh, when we look at consumer balance sheets, uh, they're, they're quite healthy. When we look at corporate balance sheets, uh, they're quite healthy as, as well. And, and we just aren't seeing a, a broader deteriora- deterioration in, 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 in consumer fundamentals. Uh, I will say that a very, very tight labor market is likely going to keep wages relatively elevated. And so if it was fiscal stimulus that was keeping consumer balance sheets relatively robust over the course of 2020 and 2021, I do think it is uh, uh, robust and rising wages at all parts of the income spectrum that are going to keep the consumer balance sheets relatively uh, well supported over the course of this year and next. So, okay, Um, but of course, you know, we've been talking about the Federal Reserve. But the Fed isn't the only central bank that's beginning to tighten policy. Uh, what's your current outlook for the ECB, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan? Well, starting with the ECB, uh, the ECB actually delivered a fairly hawkish surprise uh, last Thursday when, uh, when, when they met. Um, and essentially, it announced a faster exit from its asset purchase program, or APP, bond buying program. Uh, initially, they had anticipated that purchases were going to continue over the course of 2022, and now they expect to cease purchases uh, shortly following uh, the end of the, the third quarter. Um, what I also what was also uh, made clear is that they wouldn't begin hiking rates until they concluded uh, their, ashes, uh, their, their asset purchase program. And, and now that they've made clear that they would conclude those purchases at the end of the third quarter, that does leave runway for potentially rate hikes coming from the ECB sometime in the fourth quarter of this year, potentially in the first quarter of, of 2023. Uh, and you have seen markets begin to price in that, that reality. Uh, from the Bank of England, uh, the BOE has already uh, increased rates three times this year. Uh, well, twice this year, once at the end of last year. Uh, and we do think that they will increase re- rates potentially another three times uh, this year. Uh, they are another developed market that is dealing with the effects of, of higher inflation uh, and the need for the central bank to start to try to quell higher inflation. Uh, and so they've already been, uh, have well, well telegraphed their uh, intention to continue to, to hike rates in order to, uh, to ease some of these inflationary concerns. Now, the Bank of Japan is one of the few central banks that is um, very much in sharp contrast with a lot of the other developed market central banks. Um, the, the, the Bank of Japan continues to deal with very muted inflationary pressures. Uh, headline CPI came in at 0.9% year over year in February within Japan, well below their, their 2% target. Um, and then wage growth has also been relatively subdued uh, in Japan as well. It, it's very clear that uh, disinflation or deflation is, is so well entrenched into consumers and businesses in Japan uh, that it's just very hard to get any sort of inflationary pressures to materialize. And so uh, we're not seeing any rate hikes being priced in from the Bank of Japan any anytime soon. With that being said, uh, there is um, a, a, a desire to at least begin to uh, ease up on their their bond purchases um, out of the Bank of Japan also. So if we put it all together, 
know, our outlook for growth, our outlook for inflation, what the Federal Reserve is doing, what other central banks are doing. What does this mean in terms of the United States? What is your outlook on long-term rates? And do you think the 10-year yield can move higher from its current to two and a quarter percent? I think the 10-year yield can move higher, uh, but there is a big question mark to how much higher. Um, I think if in order for the 10-year yield to move higher, you will need to see uh, further clarity on Russia-Ukraine and what that outlook would, would look like. We need to get past some of the uncertainty uh, around the geopol geopolitical tensions that still hang over are hanging over uh, the, the markets. Um, I, I do think that uh, I run the, the fair value model for our team, and I'm still getting a figure of between 2.3 and 2.5% for the US 10 year to, to end the year. Generally speaking, forward markets are pricing in a, a, a similar outcome. So it's still slightly biased for long-term rates to move higher. But again, there is that question of, of just how much higher. And I, and, and I don't think in an environment in which uh, inflation is expected to moderate, growth is also expected to moderate. And with the risk, the risk of a recession continuing to, to move higher from here, um, long rates uh, being able to you know, move to two point two and three quarters or or three percent. I think, um, uh, I think we would need to see a lot of good things happening and being priced into markets for long term rates to move that high. I guess a follow on question is: Well, from your perspective, then when do bonds begin to look attractive again? Well, if I was an equity investor, I'd probably tell you never. But now that, but as a bond investor, I tell you that they're starting to begin to start to look attractive again. Um, uh, again, 10 year yields over two and a quarter percent or roughly at two and a quarter percent are some of the attractive, most attractive levels that we've seen uh, over the past five years or so uh, on the U.S. 10 year. Um, and so rates are beginning to look slightly uh, attractive. We are beginning to see demand come back from uh, institutional investors as a result of the backup that we've seen in rates, uh, particularly also when we look at things like municipals, uh, investment grade corporates, as well as U.S. high yield spreads have widened out um, also. And, and this was a concern because valuations were incredibly attractive across many uh, fixed income sectors. And that dynamic has changed as rates have moved higher and spreads has widened back out. Um, and so now may be a time if, uh, you know, recognizing that a recession is still a low probability in our view for 2022, now may be a time for investors to begin re-engaging again uh, with certain parts of fixed income uh, that have cheapened out. Well, so I guess lastly, if we, if we sort of drill down on that a little bit, uh, given your outlook um, and looking at the broader universe of fixed income assets, which sectors look the most attractive from here? Sure. So when we look at sectors like um, U.S. high yield, for an example, um, uh, I like to look at uh, uh, one of our guide pages that shows the spreads to worse across a host of different fixed income sectors. Uh, looking at where U.S. high yield spreads came into the year uh, at roughly 320 basis points over treasuries. They're now sitting at roughly 400 basis points over treasuries. When we look at investment grade corporates, they came into here at roughly 96 basis points spread over treasuries. They're now at roughly 140 basis points spread over treasuries. And, and I think this is important when you think about uh, the fact that credit fundamentals have not necessarily haven't deteriorated uh, from from the beginning of the year. If anything, they've actually improved. Um, and so when we look at things like default rates, uh, the trailing 12 month default rate for the U.S. high yield index sits at just 32 basis points uh, relative to a long run average of roughly three and a half percent. So set a different way, if you were to take 500 high yielding companies in the U.S., 
Only two of them missed an interest payment over the last 12 months. I mean, I can't talk to a corporate credit analyst that doesn't tell me corporate credit fundamentals are, are absolutely fantastic. Um, and so now at absolute high yields of, of around 600 basis points, spreads at roughly 400, um, uh, with investment grade, uh, you're now looking at, uh, depending on uh, which uh, your credit quality, uh, you're looking at roughly 100 to 150 basis points and spread uh, over, over treasuries. We do think you're now to a certain degree getting compensated again for the underlying risks uh, that you're uh, that are being priced into into credit markets. Um, additionally, when we look into municipals, um, municipals yields have uh, have risen. Uh, municipal bond prices have have certainly fallen as uh, as uh, rates have moved higher. Um, with that being said, we are still finding value in some of the longer dated uh, municipal bonds relative to treasuries. When we look at those from a valuation um, unit treasury ratio uh, standpoint, those are looking a, a bit attractive. Uh, it is a market that is heavily retail focused and we have seen uh, roughly consecutive weeks of, of outflows uh, within the muni space. Um, and so that could continue to provide uh, a bit of a, a bit of a, a headwind to, to the market. Uh, but even with the municipals, um, fundamentals remain very, very well, uh, very, very well supported. Rainy day funds are above where they were at uh, pre-pandemic. Um, you continue to see revenue growth uh, given the fiscal stimulus that has made its way through to state and local governments um, uh, in, in very strong uh, positions. And so we do think that an environment in which, again, maybe tax taxes become a topical for or worries about increase in taxes, uh, become topical for uh, for the markets again. We could see interest spewing within uh, or spurring within municipals, uh, and that can provide downward pressure on um, uh, muni yields and provide opportunities for us there. Uh, and then, lastly, when we look at emerging markets, uh, we do think emerging market local debt is 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 really the 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 sweet spot. Uh, within emerging market local, we would you know certainly steer clear of of, of uh, markets that are closely connected to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, we would also steer clear of the China real estate sector uh, since they are going through uh, their, their, their challenges there. Uh, but we do anticipate that uh, emerging markets from a growth perspective uh, will continue to run above uh, developed markets, uh, particularly if you consider that while, while China has targeted a 5.5% growth target for this year, uh, it seems that that could be a challenge for the government to actually reach that target. Uh, our emerging market debt team is is pricing in uh, roughly 5% growth coming out of China. Uh, we still anticipate uh, Europe being the epicenter of, of the economic slowdown that is likely to result uh, as a function of, of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And, and you put all this together uh, and, and also compounding with some additional slowing down in, in the US from a growth perspective, you put all this together, uh, it does seem like emerging market growth, that growth alpha can begin to reassert itself sometime in the second half of the year. Um, and in particular, we would we recognize that um, the commodity price spike that we've seen are going to create winners and losers. Uh, certainly, this would create a winner in economies like South Africa and, and Brazil and so certainly hurt um, other uh, emerging economies that are that tend to import more of their commodities than export. Um, and so that's one of the way that's that's how we're sort of looking at the fixed income landscape more broadly and and where we think we're seeing some uh, some some burgeoning opportunities. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Jordan. Thank you, David. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode 
where I'll be joined by Phil Camparelli, a portfolio manager from JP Morgan's Multi-Asset Solutions Group, for discussion on investment opportunities and positioning portfolios in this new environment of heightened volatility. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes of the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in the markets and the economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.